Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary, Episode 6, Weaknesses, Part 1, Environment and Equipment. I have so many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary. I'm your Man of Steel apologist, Dr. Awkward. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love discussing the Man of Steel and the DC Cinematic Universe. Together, we'll endeavor to answer the questions, criticisms, and controversies raised by the Man of Steel and those excited by the anticipated DC Cinematic Universe. In this episode, we cover some of the possible weaknesses and how they may have worked in the film. Specifically, we're going to cover how the environment and equipment works with Kryptonians. This podcast dives deep into the Man of Steel to answer the critics and the confused. This show is not meant to convert anybody, but to celebrate a film that leaves a lot of wonderful room for interpretation and investigation. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who loved The Man of Steel and who love to chew their food. We'll start with diegetic analysis for what happened in the film, then analyze the creative decisions that took place outside the film. For now, we're doing general topic episodes like this one. So thanks for joining me. In the last three episodes, I've been covering the powers that set Kal-El apart. Considering them all together, Superman seems nigh invincible. Or is he? This episode is the first of a two-part series about one of the most misunderstood topics from Man of Steel, the Kryptonian weaknesses. Now, admittedly, it was probably conveyed in a confusing manner, but we'll endeavor to do a little bit better by exploring how the Kryptonians get their powers, how those powers get suppressed, and how that interacts with the environment and their equipment, like their helmets and their armor. Then next week, we'll break down the insights that Man of Steel provides on how Batman and other future opponents of Superman might have a chance to scrap with him. But then we'll also discuss how compelling conflict doesn't necessarily require it. So we'll start with a basic theory of how the powers and weaknesses work. Then we'll point out the possible problems with the basic theory. Then we'll cover some of the alternative explanations, address their issues. And finally, we'll pick a theory that seems best for now. I always disclaim that reasonable minds will differ. And it's especially true here since the ambiguity of the film leaves a lot of room for interpretation. I've had so much fun working with it though. I've got my crazy TV detective obsessed investigator murder wall of evidence tacked in a largely indecipherable manner with hints of order known only to me, colored string and dry erase notations peppering the construct. That's what my Microsoft One notebook looks like for this. After turning it over and thinking about a lot and asking the community for some answers, I've crystallized it into a maybe a clearer table, which I've shared on Reddit and should be available in the show notes. So let's start with the basic theory. It has two basic precepts. One. Kryptonians get their powers from yellow sun radiation, which they can store in their cells. And two, their powers are suppressed by breathing Kryptonian atmosphere. Whoa, mind blown. That is not a huge insight, right? That's not an incredible answer. That's not something completely unexpected. But to be fair, that's, you know, aside from the Kryptonian atmosphere aspect, it's pretty traditional, and that simple understanding covers 90% of the movie. It, it, it doesn't have any conflicts or contradictions or issues. And so if that's the extent of the understanding for most of the movie-going audience, that's all they need. But here at Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary, we do like to dig a little bit deeper. 
uh, and try to address any possible contradictions, issues, plot holes that people might have. And that little bit of 10% starts a rabbit hole that the rest of this episode is going to cover. First, though, let's look at what supports that basic understanding, that basic theory that we've got. And let's go to Jor-El, who, as far as we can tell, is the main authority on these powers in the film. Most of the information that we get from the film in the first person, or that's explicitly stated, comes from Jor-El. And we first have that line where it's not actually Jor-El saying it's Lara, but she says, a main sequence yellow star. And to that, Jor-El says, a young star his cells will drink its radiation, right? Then later in the film, Clark meets Jor-El's hologram for the first time, and he asks the question that has been burning in his mind his entire life. He says, why am I so different from them? And we get Jor-El's narration. He says, Earth's sun is younger and brighter than Krypton was. Your cells have drunken its radiation, strengthening your muscles, your skin, your senses. Earth's gravity is weaker, yet its atmosphere is more nourishing. You've grown stronger here than I could have ever imagined. The only way to know how strong is to keep testing your limits. So we got a lot of information in just those two scenes and those handful of lines. And let's break it down a little bit. First, we have the fact that the radiation is is stored. It, It doesn't necessarily have to be on tap all the time in order to operate. The analogy that Jorel provides is drinking. And if you think about drinking, then when you take in the water, you aren't hydrated only while you are drinking, right? You are able to take that water in, keep it within stores within your body, and rely on that, that drink, that liquid, that, that water, until you feel thirst again. Contrast that against a character like Nuclear Man from Superman 4, not the greatest movie in the world, but the villain in that case did need to perpetually be within the sun in order to maintain his powers. That's something that distinguishes him here, and a little bit of detail that comes from Jorel's metaphor about how his powers work. Another thing that Jorel mentions is that it has strengthened your muscles, your skin, your senses. Now, the fact that he says strengthening, it tends to imply a degree of permanence, so a, an actual tangible change or effect. I wouldn't go so far to say as his powers come from his muscles being strengthened. We did talk about that extensively in our last series of episodes. Simply put, strengthening your muscles would not enable you to accomplish the great feats that Superman does, but it doesn't mean that his strength isn't enhanced beyond just, say, a normal baseline human's strength. And before you jump to the conclusion that that's how Superman maintains his incredible muscle tone without having to do resistance training, we do have an answer for that, but that's another show. Now, it's important to take note of this drinking analogy as opposed to continually needing to be on tap because of some later discussions we'll have in this show. So I'm just highlighting it for your information right now. Another thing that's interesting about what Jor-El says is that he says that radiation is the source of his powers. Notice that Jor-El says that radiation has strengthened your senses. A common theory out there is that the radiation provides part of the powers, but that Earth's atmosphere provides the following complement of powers, with particularity, the sensory abilities. However, Jor-El's statement doesn't exactly back that up. He says, your cells have drunken in its radiation strengthening, dot, 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 your senses. So here it is the radiation that is causing Superman's super senses, 
not necessarily the atmosphere. At the same time, then it seems like there's some surplusage in his terminology and his explanation. The gravity seems to be a non sequitur. As far as I can tell, it doesn't seem to play into the movie at all, and it's never raised or addressed in any direct fashion that ties specifically to his powers. I guess you could explain it as tied to his struggle against the world engine, but we'll talk more about that later. But right now we're just sort of highlighting the points. And then lastly, of course, he mentions the more nourishing atmosphere. And that, of course, causes all sorts of problems in that remaining 10%, which, is, which this episode is going to explore and talk about. So if that's our basic understanding of how the powers start and how they work, we have to also look at the second supposition, which is that powers are suppressed by the breathing of K-Air. And we have a lot of lines in the film tied to this understanding or this effect. I'll play some audio clips, but in case I don't get to that, here's me reading off those lines. So, Feora, the atmospheric composition of our ship is not compatible with humans. You need to wear a breather beyond this point. You have Druzad. You've spent a lifetime adapting to Earth's ecology, but you never adapted to ours. You have Jax Ur. Here, in this environment, you are as weak as a human. You have Jorel. I can modify its atmospheric composition to human compatibility. You have Lois. If that thing makes Earth more like Krypton, won't you be weaker around it? Now you'll notice that both Jaxer and Lois use the word weak in the environment described by all these lines above. That is, the Kryptonian atmosphere. Henceforth, let's call it K-Air just to save on syllables. So, while Superman is weak, he's likely not drained because he bounces back as soon as Jor-El changes the atmospherics on the ship, and Superman is no longer breathing the K-air. Of course, the other possibility that is that his powers are fueled by Earth's atmosphere, which now we'll call E-air, but I think that's discounted by the examples outside of Earth's atmosphere, and Jor-El's statement of how the powers work. When I say the examples of his powers outside of Earth's atmosphere, we've covered that in previous episodes. I'm talking about the examples where... He's in the oil rig fire, and the conditions of that atmosphere is not Earth's atmosphere. When he's drifting in the ocean underwater, that's not Earth's atmosphere. And of course, the three trips to space going all the way up, all the way down. That's a wide range of different Earth atmosphere conditions, but certainly by the time you reach the vacuum of space, that's definitely not Earth atmosphere. So in all of those circumstances, Superman's powers were able to work, and so it doesn't seem like he's fueled by Earth atmosphere. And as we discussed above, Jor-El's statement of how the powers work, it seems to come from radiation, not Earth atmosphere. As we also discussed before, the metaphor of drinking means that the power is stored within him. So by being no longer exposed to the K-air, his powers are no longer suppressed, and he has access to those stores again, and therefore his strength comes back and he can break his bonds. So that's our basic understanding of how the powers work. And like I said, it covers most of the film, and it's enough understanding that unless you really start to worry about these contradictions, it shouldn't bother you for most of the film and probably for any future films. So if that's all you need to rationalize it, that's great. We can move on forward. But here's where the stumbling blocks come into. So taken together, you gain powers from the sun, you lose powers from breathing K-air, and that basic theory is enough to work for the entire film, except the Battle of Smallville. Now here we're going to need a more sophisticated theory to address everything that happens in Smallville. Here's the basic problem, and it, it comes down to essentially two theories, but we'll branch off as it goes. The two issues come in this fashion. Issue number one. 
If K-Air drains all Kryptonians of their powers, then what was Zod breathing? If it's not K-Air, what's the function of his helmet? Alternatively, we've got issue number two. If K-Air does not suppress powers in all Kryptonians, why is Kal-El distinguishable from Zod? Why does he keel over in the Black Zero, whereas Zod can breathe K-Air in Smallville and still exhibit powers and function perfectly fine? So theory one branches into two basic theories. The first is saying essentially that Zod was demonstrating abilities, but not through his Kryptonian powers. And the second is that he was demonstrating abilities, but he wasn't breathing K-Air. We'll talk about the first branch of the first theory first. So if K-Air does drain all Kryptonians of their powers and Zod was breathing K-Air, then rationally, he doesn't have any powers. But as we see through the film, he clearly does have powers. He throws the truck through the Kent homestead, he endures Superman's blows, and then Feora and Namek clearly exhibit extraordinary abilities. One of the most common reconciliations I've seen people put forward for this is that the Kryptonians actually didn't have any powers, but they were relying entirely on the abilities and powers of their armor. In other words, that their armor is powered. Now, we've discussed this in the past, and in the first episode, I may have gone too far and said that the armor is not powered. What I meant to say is that it is not powered to the extent that we see in the Battle of Smallville. And the reason for that can be summed up pretty quickly with a handful examples, right? First, we have Jor-El versus Zod on Krypton. And in that case, they were both wearing armor and they were both engaged in quite an extensive melee. They both were very motivated to end that battle. And a lot of the blows landed on their face, on the fleshy part of their head, right? <laughs> in fact, Zod gains a uh, memorable scar from that fight. If they were punching with the abilities or forces that we saw demonstrated in the Battle of Smallville, I'm pretty sure one of those two guys would have been decapitated in that fight. Second, during Lois's escape from the Black Zero, there's a couple of indications that the Kryptonians on board clearly are not powered. First off, you have guards that are stopped by mere doors. And as we see later with Superman casually tapping a panel and causing it to blow out the hull of the Black Zero, if they had powers, they would not have been stopped by mere doors. Specifically, Lois engages in a struggle with Carvex, played by Samantha Joe, and in that struggle, she's able to kick Carvex off of her and engage in a physical struggle. Now, again, Carvex was wearing armor at the time, and if it was powered to the degree that we see in the Battle of Smallville, then it's highly unlikely that Lois would have been able to wrestle with her, kick her off, and escape. Now, some have suggested in that scene that Carvex has powers or powered armor because she punches through a back panel of the pod and uh, causes some structural damage. Now, to me, that's damage only to decorative molding. If I gave you an armored gauntlet, I'm pretty sure you could mess up a car's dash without superpowers. And that's essentially all that's inside an escape pod. It's just plastic molding to, well, not plastic, but some sort of molding to separate the passenger from the you know functional wires and gizmos and gadgets within the in the pod itself it doesn't necessarily take powers or a super feet or power armor to do that kind of damage that said obviously the armor is powered to some degree it does run on power it has powered component like the gauntlet bayonet that zod deploys it has that 
retracting face mask. And if you consider the helmets and the breathers a component of that, clearly that also has a powered component to it. So it is not to say that the armor is completely inert. I don't believe that. But at the same time, I don't think it grants you the powers that you saw in Smallville, because if it did, then things would have gone differently on Krypton and on the Black Zero when uh, Lois is trying to escape. Beyond being just stopped by doors or being able to be wrestled, Lois does apparently stop, if not kill, two Kryptonians. So apparently they also did not have that same level of invulnerability or durability that the Kryptonians in Smallville had. So to the extent that their invulnerability comes from their powers, Lois being able to down two of them suggests that those on the Black Zero didn't have any powers. So that's theory one, branch one, where K-Air does drain all Kryptonians. Zod is breathing K-Air, so he doesn't have powers except through his armor. Branch 2 says that Kryptonian air does drain all Kryptonians, but that Zod was not breathing K-air. Instead, Zod was either breathing E-air or something that was neither E-air or K-air. So that leads naturally to two questions. Why are you breathing anything other than K-air? And if you're not breathing K-air, what's the use of the helmet? Well, let's answer them in turn. First, why aren't you breathing K-Air? Well, Jor-El lays out for us, Earth air is more nourishing. So why not? If Earth air is purely a plus factor, if there's no consequences to breathing Earth's atmosphere for adult Kryptonians, which no matter under any of these theories that you, you follow, appears to be the case insofar as respiratory distress. The helmets do get compromised for Zod and Feora. So they, whatever they're breathing before, they go from that to earth air. And in that span, neither of them experience respiratory distress. So if it is sufficiently compatible for Kryptonians to breathe, and as Jor-El puts forward, it is more nourishing, then why not? In other words, you may have a breather function on your helmet, but why turn it on? The atmosphere is fine for you to breathe. In fact, it's better for you to breathe. Maybe that's the case. In other words, they came down and they just said, we're gonna breathe e-air. So that's one possible apologetics. The other possibility is that they are breathing a mixture. However, that mixture is not K-air. In other words, K-air still causes Kryptonians to lose their powers. But although they're using their helmets and they're breathing in something else, they are breathing in something other than K-air. And then you have to ask yourself, well, what would they be breathing and why would they be breathing them? Well, let's look at other warriors, other individuals that wear gas masks that wear environmental suits. And we can think of two very good reasons to do so. One reason is for safety and redundancy in the case of fighter pilots. Fighter pilots will often wear oxygen masks that feed a mixture, although it is diluted to become more like Earth atmosphere, it does start out as a pure oxygen mixture. So for example, Zod and his crew may have a enhanced combat mixture something that helps protect them if they were to experience, say, explosive decompression of a dropship during transit from space to Earth's atmosphere. So that mixture would still substantively be similar to K-Air, but it may be different enough that it doesn't cause the same suppressing effect that we saw with the K-Air in the film. 
Another good reason to potentially be breathing something other than K-air is a little off base, and to be honest, there's no direct support for it in the film, but it's essentially to be high, to be drugged, to be on narcotics, to be on opiates. In human history, we have a long history of warriors who take performance-enhancing intoxicants. Such intoxicants would dull their pain, dull their fears, reduce their inhibitions, instead create stronger, braver, bolder, more fearless warriors. You have a lot of incentive to dope up your warriors so that they're less inclined towards compassion, so that they're more suggestible, programmable, perhaps aggressive. So for all we know, it's possible that every time that little bit of that little gas mask thing pops up, Feyor is taking a hit so that she can be a little more juiced to go and kill her enemy. Utter speculation, completely unsupported except by human history. Not really the theory I'm going with, but I just submit it there for your thoughts. Okay, so if you're satisfied that there's reasons to breathe something other than K-air, such as E-air, which is nourishing and apparently does not affect adult Kryptonians negatively, or perhaps some sort of combat mixture for either performance enhancement or safety in case of decompression of their dropships, then you have the natural question, why are you wearing these helmets at all? Well, the first thing is, many people have mistakenly called them breathers exclusively, as if the only function of the helmet is to act as a breather. When Superman refers to the headgear which he had damaged, he says, without your helmet, you're getting everything. So clearly, in Superman's eyes, its function goes beyond being a breather. And that's perfectly reasonable to say or do. If I were to say to you, to make a call, hold that microphone to your mouth. It doesn't mean that the smartphone that I'm handing to you is a microphone solely and exclusively. It means that a microphone is a component of that smartphone. So likewise, that Feora references a part of the helmet that is relevant to Lois's respiration as a breather, that doesn't mean the entire assembly is a breather only in function or in name. In fact, we see at least a couple of other functions. First, it protects Zod from the physical strikes that he endures during Superman's angriest moment. Second, it protects Zod from sensory bombardment. We'll talk about this in just a bit. Third, they could act as comms or communication devices. Now, as an aside and to make things even more complex and confusing, the gas mask portion of the fully assembled armor is part of the chest plate and not the helmet. When Lois gets the helmet, with the breather, she doesn't get that little gas mask. And when Zod's helmet is damaged, if you watch closely, the gas mask struggles to retract itself into his chest plate. So it is a separate piece of armor. A couple of more notes about that mask. You never see Namek's gas mask retract. Alternatively, Feyora does retract it but with no necessarily clear rhyme or reason. Now, the main thing that I believe the helmet does for Zod and Feyre in the film is that they act as sensory compression devices. If you look at them carefully, there's portions that cover their ears entirely with little active flaps that open and close in response to the sound in the environment. We also see that they have variable opacity. When Feyre first lands, it's black, and then it's able to turn transparent. So it can act as a shield or sensory compression just from the brightness of light. Now, if you don't know what sensory compression is or what I'm talking about, 
It's taking the wide berth or band of senses that you could be receiving and bringing them down and into safe and comfortable ranges. So for the light of the sun or glare coming off of other vehicles on the road or glare coming off the lake while boating, by wearing sunglasses, particularly those with polarization, you're able to filter out or filter down the information that you're taking into your eyes to be more comfortable and safe for them. For example, completely filtering out UV or polarizing that glaring light so that it's cut back to something more comfortable. In the case of auditory compression, typically what we do is we take the very high amplitudes, bring them back down to safe or comfortable hearing range, and in some cases, we may take the quiet noises and amplify them up into normal hearing range. For the very loud sounds, it's very obvious why you would want to do this. In combat, it helps you cut out gunshots, tank fire, explosions, but at the same time, it still allows you to hear the commands of your commanding officers and fellow servicemen and communicate clearly. For hunters, they appreciate the amplification of soft sounds so that they can hear rustling of leaves, breaking of twigs, and be more prone or easy to stalk and catch their prey. The U.S. military has been deploying something called TCAP, Tactical Communications and Protection System, essentially these active hearing protection devices. By active, I mean it's an electronic device that uses algorithms and senses to actively bring the band of audio noise into this tight range. Compare that to, say, passive ear protection, which just is basically your standard earplugs or earmuffs that dulls all sound down by a certain amount. But that would include the commands of your officers, the communications of your teammates. So as you can see, that kind of ability would be very useful on the field. It's something that we already employ in today's technology. So it's very plausible and it seems apparent by what happens in the film that you'd also have this same kind of sensory compression going on with Kryptonian armor. Now, an ancillary question that comes up that even if the senses were being compressed, even if they were being blocked out, if indeed Zod and Feyora were fully powered, even within their suits, why aren't their super senses going off within the helmet, right? So in other words, their x-ray vision could still be seeing through the helmet or they'd still be uh, they still have super sensitive hearing inside the helmet and i think the answer for that is that the compressed senses which the helmet provides gives you an artificial band of focus which is superman's solution for avoiding sensory overload or attack in other words by bringing all your senses and all the information into your head within a comfortable normal band at that point, you're unlikely to trigger a sensory overload, causing you to x-ray vision through your own helmet or have super hearing within it, those kinds of things. And as we saw with Clark as a child and with Zod as an adult in the Arctic, it is something that you can overcome with a degree of focus and mental control. So as long as the helmet is providing that focus and mental control, then there's no need or expectation that the Kryptonian inside it would have to. So whether breathing e-air or a performance-enhancing mixture, neither would sap Zod's powers, and the helmet can still be fully explained by the utility it provides. This also explains why there's no respiratory transition when the helmets go down, because they are already breathing that 
same or similar atmosphere. And it also explains why there's still sensory issues, because they lose the, um, the sensory compression or focus that the helmets provide. It does introduce another question or another issue. And that is, if the helmets are so useful, if they have so much utility, then why not on Krypton when starting a coup to overthrow your government? Well, there's a couple of possible answers. One, you know, it is a rebellion and you are fighting loyal Kryptonians. So it may be useful to have your faces visible to ID your fellow insurgents. But as we can see, the helmets can be completely transparent. So I don't think that argument holds a whole lot of weight. Instead, I like an argument that's inspired by Superman the Animated Series. You have to remember that the government they're trying to overthrow is the established system. They control everything. And the helmets that we're talking about are loaded with information technology. That technology is the technology of the established system. So it's loaded with comms, it's loaded with networking, and now you're endeavoring to overthrow a system where they have full control over that system. <laughs> in other words, the system in place may already now have all the identities and informations on your movements and locations and your communications if you were to use their helmets. In Superman the Animated Series, there's an episode where they go back and show Jaxer and Mala trying to overthrow the Kryptonian Council. In that episode, Jor-El actually uses the insurgents' helmets against them. He takes one of them, overloads the senses in that, and the network of insurgent helmets causes all of the insurgents to crumble simultaneously, and thus the rebellion is stopped. Zod in our film may have foresaw such an issue. Thus, they decline to use the communications, comms, and information technology that's already linked to the system that they're trying to overthrow. This would explain why Zod had to walk out of the Citadel to communicate his orders to his troops on the platform, rather than relying on the comms, again, which would be in possession or control of the existing system. So that would explain to us why these highly useful, highly utilitarian helmets weren't used during the Kryptonian coup, but were used on Earth in the Battle of Smallville. All right, so those are the branches under Theory 1. If you want to make the conclusion that Zod was breathing K-Air, then that brings us back to Theory 2. Under Theory 2, the helmets do act as breathers. Zod was breathing K-Air, but we drop the assumption that K-Air suppresses powers in all Kryptonians. Rather, it affected Superman differently than it does Zod, or at least it does under the circumstances in the movie. In trying to figure out what distinguishes Superman from Zod, well, we are told at least one thing. Zod says that Kal-El has spent a lifetime adapting to Earth's atmosphere. That's something that he did that Zod didn't. And of course, the corollary of that is that Zod and his crew spent a lifetime adapting to K-Air. The presumption there is that if you've adapted to K-Air, it no longer acts as a suppressant to your powers. The obvious question then is why does Kal-El keel over when going from E-Air to K-Air, whereas Zod and Feora have their helmets compromised, but they don't suffer any respiratory distress going from K-Air to E-Air? I think the answer for that is, again, borrowing from the theories above, that E-Air is better than K-Air. And so for Kal-El going from E-Air to K-Air, he's going uphill. But for Zod going from K-Air to E-Air, well, that's going from a harsher environment 
as Jorel called it, to a better environment, to a more nourishing environment. Another ancillary question then is, if all it takes is adaptation to overcome it, how could they have relied on restraining him? I think the answer to that is that they didn't have to worry about Superman breaking his restraints because it takes a lifetime, and they weren't anticipating him spending a lifetime on their ship. However, this does tend to contradict Jaxer's comments. He says, here, in this environment, you're as weak as a human. And he seems to be laying the blame on the environment rather than Kal-El's ability to adapt, or lack thereof. Also, as we've discussed in past episodes, Kal-El has shown the ability to adapt as a child. And in fact, Kal-El did adapt to some degree. He was experiencing respiratory distress and blacking out when he first appeared on the Black Zero. But when he wakes from unconsciousness, he's no longer coughing, even if he's weak. Of course, this uphill argument does struggle with the fact that Kal-El suffered years of pain, as Zod describes, and things were so hard for him, as Martha describes, as a child. If E-Air is purely a plus factor, then why would a child struggle? And I think this is explainable using juvenile asthma. Many individuals have asthma as children, but they grow out of it. And like many things related to allergies and physiology, it's not completely understood, but most of the prevailing theories of why growing up neutralizes the asthma has to do with an adult's greater ability to resist allergy and inflammation. For example, the bronchial pathways or the bronchioles grow in diameter as the child grows into an adult. Now that the pathways are wider and larger, more air can pass through them, they're less susceptible to allergy or inflammation, and to the extent that they do get inflamed, air is still able to pass through them. So the composition of Earth's atmosphere may have been an inflammatory reaction to Clark as a child, but as he grew older and as he adapted to the situation over a course of years, then he grew out of that respiratory distress. It's something that we see in humans. It's not beyond the realm of reason for a Kryptonian. All right, those are working theories, but they do take some time to explain, and they are somewhat counterintuitive. So let's get to what I think is the best theory. And I think credit goes to Reddit user Godless Hero for responding back to our thread in the Superman Reddit, exploring this issue. He did come up with the framework for this. However, this is my analogy of it, and I think it's the most elegant explanation so far. So above, we use the film's metaphor of drinking sunlight and being hydrated as being powered. However, I think a better explanation, or a more clear metaphor, would be to imagine a battery-powered laptop with a charging cable. We analogize Superman's reserves of solar energy to the laptop's battery, and we'll analogize being in direct sunlight with the power cable being plugged in. Obviously, he can use his powers if he's in the sun and with energy stored, just as a laptop is operational if it's plugged in, but also has a charged battery. He can also use his powers without being in the sun, like at night. This is as if running off battery power with the power cable unplugged. So what if his battery is inaccessible, but his power cable is still plugged in? With a laptop, we know that that certainly works, and I think it's the same for Superman. I think that's where the K-Air comes in. The K-Air acts as something that cuts Superman off from his battery. It doesn't drain the charge. It's still there as evident from when he breaks free on the Black Zero, but it does prevent him from using or accessing his stores, like taking the battery out of the laptop. But that isn't a problem, so long as he's still plugged in. 
that is, standing within direct sunlight. So in Smallville, Zod may have been breathing K-Air and unable to tap into his stores, but having powers directly from the source, he could still exhibit his powers. The Black Zero is a spaceship, and thus naturally it is shielded from radiation for its inhabitants to survive their journey through space. So on the Black Zero, Superman no longer had the direct radiation from the sun, nor did he have access to his stores, and that distinguishes his weakness on the Black Zero, having access to neither of his sources of power from Zod, who had access to at least one source of power. There is some support for this position based on the fact that Zod, Feor, and Namek exhibited powers immediately without having to store energy for long, as well as the fact that Superman is able to tackle the world engine, despite the presence of at least some K-Air. In fact, if you watch the world engine choreography carefully, he loses his strength and ability to fly, briefly, while choking, while in a cloud of K-Air, which is arguably suppressing his powers and the opacity of the cloud blocking his direct access to the sun. As soon as he falls below the cloud, however, he recovers. Now, just as a quick aside, and I don't want to get too much into this, obviously that short exposure to the sun or even long decades of exposure to the sun does not generate enough energy for all the feats and abilities that we see in Superman and the Kryptonians. You may be aware of a recent physics study or paper that was printed that came to this rather obvious conclusion. <laughs> that the amount of output that Superman generates in no way matches the amount of solar radiation he takes in, even if it was converted at 100% efficiency. As this is obviously the realm of fantasy and comic book tropes, I don't know that there's a satisfying scientific solution for this, but I figured I might as well share something from the late 90s as an explanation for the powers of Marvel's X-Men leader, Cyclops, and his optic blasts, which you may or may not know was also justified through the absorption of solar radiation. The late 90s explanation was that his powers didn't come from the sun per se, but rather that the solar radiation that he absorbed acted as a gate to extra-dimensional power source. So applied to Superman and the Kryptonians, it's not that they are literally using the power that they are gaining from the sun, but rather exposure to the sun gives them access to some extra-dimensional energy, which they can either tap into at that moment or also include into their stores, their own personal battery, as it were. I think this particular analogy is mostly consistent with the entire film. To be fair, I've only reviewed it for about half a day, but I don't see any problems with it and I kind of like it. The questions that I do see that arise from it are answered by our previous theories and why we walked through all of them, because it seems that you do need to layer some of these explanations to address some of the more ancillary questions. For example, having seen what K-Air does to Kal-El on the bridge of his ship, why then does Zod breathe K-Air? on Earth. Well, like we discussed before, maybe it's merely for comfort. Maybe he understands the mechanics of his powers and recognizes it won't be an issue as long as he remains within direct sunlight. But I think the answer that we alluded to before, but maybe I'll spell it out a little more clearly here, is that it may just be SOP or standard operating procedure in order to make the transition from space to atmosphere. Zod is militarily minded, and so when he's transitioning in a dropship, from a state of no atmosphere to a state of a survivable atmosphere, 
it's quite reasonable to, as a precaution, wear a gas mask in between should you experience explosive decompression or retaliation or your trip be interrupted. It's one of the reasons that our fighter pilots wear gas masks. It's a redundancy. Their cockpits are pressurized. In fact, you will often see pilots take the mask off or have it hanging to the side just for comfort or convenience. But nonetheless, they have it there as a redundancy or security in case of an issue. In the film, Zod is leader of an aggressive alien incursion. There is the possibility that humanity retaliates and just somehow, someway, successfully manages to damage or destroy a dropship before it makes its way to safe Earth atmosphere. So it's reasonable for Zod and his crew to take the measures that you would normally take when transiting from space to landfall. This is supported by the fact that the two times you see them come off the ship, their masks are fully opaque, the little gas masks part of their armor is up over their mouth, and their breathers are fully intact, as if to make the transition with maximum protection and shielding. Only once they make it to Earth do they begin to retract some of these things. They let their helmets go translucent or transparent. They retract the mouth guard on their masks. And Zod even does without the breather at a later point. The second point of support is when Zod leaves the Black Zero to go fetch the scout ship. At that point, he doesn't bring a helmet with him. And that's because he's making a flight within Earth atmosphere. So Zod is no longer transitioning from space to Earth atmosphere, but rather flying within it and so the function of the helmet is less necessary. Now, as a character of a motivation, I think it's more clear that Zod believes that it was a point of vulnerability, and as a warrior, he seeks to eliminate that vulnerability before any future engagements. And so I've, I feel it's more like Zod is confronting a potential weakness that could be exploited again, more than traveling through Earth atmosphere the standard procedure, no, the SOP no longer requires him to have a helmet, but nonetheless, it's arguably support. So to review, Kryptonians get their powers from either direct exposure to yellow solar radiation or from stores of the same. K-Air affects all Kryptonians, but only affects their ability to access their stores of solar energy. It does not remove their powers while they are in direct sunlight. Why did Zod still choose to breathe K-Air? Well, maybe it was standard procedure. Maybe he understood the mechanics of his own powers and wasn't concerned about accessing stores of Kryptonian energy. Another question is why Zod didn't experience the same respiratory distress going from K-Air to E-Air under this particular theory. And I think the explanations are essentially the same as the above theories. E-Air is mostly a plus factor and Zod is an adult. Now, this whole theory, as I've described it, slots in nicely and reconciles with that last percent of the film. Like I said, the general theory covers 90% of the film. This whole complex theory just needed to cover that 10% occurring in the Battle of Smallville and for that one little scene during the World Engine where Superman loses his powers. But something that doesn't quite slot in as neatly right now is the prequel comic. And if you read the prequel comic, there is a scene where I believe this is roughly the intention. Kara and Dev M are hurtling towards Earth. They've entered Sol, our solar system, and they're in a life and death struggle. Kara attacks Dev M with a space helmet, which she cracks over his head and causes him to bleed. He is damaged, he is harmed. But then there's a handful of panels showing the yellow sun 
through the bridge window or view screen of the scout ship. I think the intent is at that point, they are somehow seeing or exposed to the yellow sun. Devin tries to throw a punch at Kara. She dodges and he makes a massive dent in the hull well beyond his expectations or his normal strength. And Devem is actually surprised by his own strength. Now, my issue with this, and specifically that panel, is that scout ships are spaceships replicated a thousand times over to go to a variety of star systems in order to spread across the universe and colonize the stars. At a bare minimum, they should be shielded for radiation. This is something that even our Earth vehicles in the 1960s endeavored to do. It's also our rationale for why the Kryptonians do not have powers on the Black Zero. Unless we go back on our theory and say that K-Air does completely cut Kryptonians off from their powers, not just their store of powers. In other words, the Kryptonians on the Black Zero still are exposed to solar energy, still have the potential of power, but because they're breathing K-Air, they don't have access to their stores, nor do they have access to direct energy. And that countermands or contradicts our third and most elegant theory, that sort of laptop analogy. One proposal raised by Godless Hero in the, on Reddit was that the Black Zero would have additional or special shielding because of its entry into the Phantom Zone. While that's a reasonable distinction, at the same time, just baseline solar radiation is something that any and every scout ship should be shielded against. I think we can do apologetics for this, and that might get into even more minutia and more mechanics of how either solar shielding works on these ships or how solar powers work in Kryptonians. But I think at this point, it's easier just to discard that one offending panel and chalk it up to a miscommunication between the filmmakers who were in charge of the story and the actual comic book writer who was in charge of the script. It's not impossible to reconcile, but now we're leaving even more the realm of the intuitive for something that's only a 0.05 occurrence, you know, it's, or for something that's only just one panel in a comic of a prequel of questionable canonicity. So I think we'll wrap it up here. Next week, we'll come back with an episode applying the principles and the theories that we've developed here on how Batman and other opponents might exploit this weakness and others that we haven't talked about, but we will. I hope you join us then. Thanks so much for listening. I love discussing this stuff. And if you've been sticking with me for this whole thing, hopefully you do too. I'm genuinely grateful to each and every one of you who listen and hope you'll join my community at manofsteelanswers.com. That way, if you have any questions that you want answered or insights you want to share or commentary to make, you can post in our forums for all your like-minded apologists to see. Or you can email me at manofsteelanswers.com and maybe I'll address your question on the air. If you like what you heard, please review the show on iTunes and subscribe. This is Dr. Awkward, your Man of Steel apologist, signing off, and see you next time. You're the answer, son.